Hello. Um, I guess maybe I'll begin by saying that, as I've mentioned in the past, uh, I've gone back in time in the sense of having a milkman. It's actually a milk person because it varies from Monday to Monday. But on Mondays, milk comes to my house in a truck and it's delivered in glass bottles. Uh, and if I, I, I can get some 2% in a glass bottle, I can get some heavy cream in a glass bottle. And that's, you know, there's just sort of a joy of having something as retro uh, as a milkman or a milk person. But there's also an incredible nostalgic joy in just having milk in bottles. I don't know whether the milk is better in bottles. It feels like it is. Uh, there's a psychological impact. Um, there's some environmental stuff that we can maybe debate. But I, I think there is something in us that loves glass, uh, loves glass in a way that we can never love plastic. I'm sorry, plastic, but that's the way that it is. So we're going to talk today about glass and, and why it speaks to us. Uh, and we'll also talk a little bit about the technology of glass and why the smartphone you just bought, you then bought another piece of glass. Ideally, you did. Uh, to protect the iPhone. Uh, we'll be talking also about glass blowing. In fact, glass blowing is perhaps one of the more unlikely successful reality shows blown away uh, on Netflix. So we'll talk about the art of glass blowing towards the end. But yes, let us begin with just sort of the nature of glass itself. And as I say, why it speaks to us. Uh, joining us is John Garrison, professor at Grinnell College and the author of the book Glass, a book which I, I feel confident in saying is the only book ever written in which a chapter is devoted to Blondie and John Donne, uh, sort of side by side uh, all the way through. Blondie, of course, for Heart of Glass. John Donne, maybe a little bit more obscure. Uh, but um, uh, for, well, first of all, welcome to our show. Uh, I enjoyed your book very much, John Garrison. Oh, thank you very much. So, you know, I asked the question, why does glass speak to us? I think one thing that you would say is that it speaks to us partly because we use it for various kinds of looking. We're always, as you say, hoping to find a new way of looking, sometimes hoping to find a way of looking that allows us even to look into the past or perhaps into the future. This is all explored in your book, uh, ranging from science fiction stuff like Strange Days and Minority Report to uh, to Elizabethan and Renaissance poetry. Uh, but but say more about that. What What's going on with glass? Why do we have the feeling about it that we have? Yeah, I think, you know, I became really fascinated by glass and wanted to write the book. Um, because if you think about it, historically, glass has really transformed the way that we do look. You know, not just from eyeglasses allowing to help our eyesight as we grow older, but um, the microscope and the telescope really changed the way that we saw the world, ourselves, uh, worlds outside of our world. And the mirror too was a huge advancement, not just in technology, but in our ability to understand just what we look like. Right. You, you, there's one point uh, in the book where you make you sort of point out this very lovely progression where you know, there was a time when curved glass uh, was something we could, we could begin to use to restore our sight, the accuracy of our sight. And that transitioned the same sort of technologies and thinking that led to that transition towards microscope, microscopes and telescopes, which allowed us to see further or smaller. Um, and then from there to photography, where we can begin to transcend the boundaries of time a little bit, at least in terms of being able to preserve the way a person looks long after that person is no longer around. So, um, so maybe we should 
talk uh, about all of these things a little bit, but let's talk a little bit more uh, about the the telescope uh, and the microscope. This is, you know, you could argue people talk about movable type being one of the sort of great transforming paradigm shifts in human knowledge. The argument you make is that sort of the use of glass is almost as big a paradigm shift. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly movable type allowed us to replicate books and sort of have people share our ideas. But I think like actually getting to know sort of who we are and where we are in the universe really comes from glass with the telescope. Um, you know, one thinks of Galileo. So this discovery that we aren't actually in the center of the universe, Earth, um, but in fact that our planet it revolves around the sun. This is a hugely radical idea that got him into a lot of trouble, but, um, you know, it was only possible because of the telescope. I think, um, you know, in the microscope too, I think this sort of notion that there were things that we couldn't see and didn't know about in the world just made people that much more curious about what's going on at a microscopic and then eventually a subatomic level. Right. There's a, I think there's a citation in your book where you talk about how Milton did kind of an obscure shout out to Galileo and Paradise Lost, which I had not been aware of. But I mean, I think it's sort of appropriate because this stuff was, it wasn't just operating in the physical world, right? It was operating in the world of ideas. It was operating in a way that, that you know, may have sort of contravened other kinds of magical thinking and, and seemed like magic itself. If you can suddenly see the entire body of a flea, in all of its detail, if you can suddenly see far enough to understand things about the composition of the solar system and the universe that had not been understood before, that that almost feels, it must have felt at the time, almost like a kind of magic or divine power. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say, I love that you read the book so closely. Because <laughs> you're, you're bringing up all my kind of favorite bits, from like the Blondie to all the sci-fi movies and stuff. Um but yeah, I mean, you think about, you know, even in fairy tales in Snow White, this idea of the magic mirror, and this comes up all over the place, like Arthurian legend and stuff. This idea that mirrors, we can look in and we can see the future and we can see people in the distance. It's like, it's the stuff of fairy tale of legend and myth, but I think it reflects our actual fantasy of what glass can do. I can use glass to figure out what the moon looks like, what it'd be like to be on the moon, what there's life on other planets. Um, and I can, you know, really importantly for the Renaissance or for the, you know, the time when Shakespeare lived, like I could use a mirror to figure out what I actually look like to other people. Um, as you said a minute ago, people for a very long time wanted to know what they looked like. So people looked at their reflection in the water or looked in sort of polished stone or polished metal but they had no real sense of exactly what they looked like to other people. So it was really the per invention or perfection of the glass mirror in the sort of 13th, 14th, 15th century that like it's, it's shocking to think about, but like it was only then that people knew like, okay, this is actually what I look like. Before right. that, they could only really guess at it. Right. People are like narcissus gazing in pools uh, or looking at, you know, burnished bronze or something. And then suddenly, I, I think the way that it worked, too, was they they figured out a way, uh, uh, glass blowers in Germany and then Venice figured out a way to kind of blow sort of a cannoli uh, of glass. Uh, it was a cylinder of glass. They cut off the ends. And then they kind of unroll it flat and put it on uh, some kind of hot plate, right? That's how you, you get to have a glass mirror that's so much more 
accurate than and and you know representative than anything that they'd they'd had before. So this it is like very specifically kind of glass technology that's that's taking off. And as a result, as you point out, if sh- when Shakespeare says glass, a good portion of the time he means mirror, right? A lot of other Elizabethan Renaissance poets and writers would do the same thing. Yeah, this is sort of a there's an explosion in the in the Renaissance period of people using glass or mirrors as a metaphor. Um, so before that, people weren't sort of like using it very much in poetry and drama. Um, but all of a sudden, everyone's talking about glass because you're pointing out once it seems so simple, but once they could flatten it, we could actually use it to see ourselves. These things took off, were incredibly popular and transformed the way we sort of thought about the world. Um, Hamlet very famously says that the role of theater is to hold a mirror up to nature. And like that, we just see this all over the Renaissance and forward, these sort of references to this idea that we can actually know what things look like now through this really simple transformation of a material. So uh, we're going to get into this a a little bit more technically in the next segment with Alex Clare. But one of the ways you begin the book is by saying something that I had never really thought about, which is that even the nature of glass itself is a little bit slippery. Uh, it's not exactly a solid and not exactly a liquid. I know this isn't your area of expertise, but I also know you asked around about this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, the, yeah, that's funny. the first person I asked was my dad because <laughs> A, he's an, he's an engineer, and B, because, I don't know, maybe we always ask our dads or our moms uh, science questions. But yeah, I mean, I had heard forever that, oh, glass is a liquid. And that's why it uh, over time it gets thicker at the bottom, um, and it turns out that that's actually a myth. It turns out that the reason the stained glass windows from the Middle Ages are thicker at the bottom is because of just the way that you were saying they'd roll them out in order to make them. Mm. But because of that, it, like scientists still today debate: is glass a liquid or is glass a solid? And part of it is that it has, um, and again, I'm not a scientist, but. Uh, it has this quality of um, these sort of the, the atoms themselves being so close together and in no particular pattern, it looks like a liquid, even though it functions like a solid. So if we brought 10 scientists on the show and asked them, um, I think we would get three of them to say it's a solid, three of them to say it's a liquid, and four of them to say we really still have no idea. Right. So, and we're going to bring one scientist onto the show. Okay. We'll see what we'll see what she says. But um, the... Um, there's a way in which, I mean, we're already kind of suggesting some of the numinous qualities uh, of glass. And then, as, as we've suggested before, when you get to photography, there's an interesting thing that goes on. Okay, so first of all, first, the, the, the very uh, nearsighted or farsighted or, uh, or vision-impaired person can see better. Then mortal humans can see the moon in its details uh, and a flea in its details. And then photography comes, and you explore the question about whether the magic of photography and part of the magic or the alchemy uh, of photography is this idea that you can't exactly defeat death, but you can blur the, the line between was and is. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, as we've been saying, like, and we'll get to this if we talk about kind of cell phones and stuff, like glass has always had a kind of magical quality to it. So whether it's those magic mirrors that see the future, or see the distance, um, in legend or whether it's in the medieval church where the stained glass window depicts all different kinds of miracles. Um, 
especially for a congregation that can't read at the time. Like glass is always doing this um, kind of magic where it's presenting kind of images, stories. We can think of film in front of us. Uh, but yeah, I, I talk a lot in the book about photography because this is a technology um, where we use a glass lens to capture someone at a particular moment. And, um, you know, I talk about different kinds of uh, autobiographical, different kinds of biographical writing, different people have written about, um, you know, just that profound experience of looking at a, a picture of yourself as a child or seeing an image of your parent or relative as a child. There's something kind of uncanny or disarming about it because you think, well, like, yeah, that's like, that's my dad when he was in the army or the guy, that's me when I was four. Um, but there's also a way in which the glass is allowing you to time travel in this really kind of um, unbelievable way because like, my four-year-old self actually is not the person I am today. Um, and like, I wasn't alive when my dad was in the army. So to see a photo of him kind of captures this stranger and to see a photo of myself captures a stranger in a certain way. So we think of glass as getting us closer to things, illuminating things, making things more clear. But to see old photography in some ways makes things less clear, more alien to us. And I think just ends up adding to the magic of glass. Right. So um, you begin the book by talking about a, a video that uh, kind of made you very interested in glass um, produced by Corning. I watched it today. It has 20, 27 million views for some reason. Oh, yeah. And it's, re it's really cool. Yeah. And it's, it's, all, it's I think it's called a day of glass or something like that. And it's yeah. it just it it's, looks a little bit into the future. I mean, it doesn't look as futuristic now as, me, as maybe it did when it was first made. But um, – but it sort of, you know, posits a world of glass surfaces where we wouldn't have kind of a freestanding laptop. Like any glass surface could almost be transformed into the function of a laptop or or a smartphone. So there's a way in which glass is what the future looks like in various ways. And, and you explore that a lot in the book, whether you're talking about, as I said before, Minority Report, Strange Days or, or, or whatever. So what's, what's, what's going on there? Why do we think glass and then think the future? Yeah, it's really funny. You know, you, you think of that scene from The Graduate. Yeah, it's a classic. But uh, yeah, Dustin Hoffman's character is told by Walter Brooks character, like, you know, one word for you, plastic. Mm. And like, you get this idea that like, oh yeah, plastic's gonna be the future because it's artificial, we can now create it. Um, but one of the reasons I talk about science fiction so much in the book is that when you think about just classic moments from science fiction, um, and, you know, I talk a lot about kind of Star Trek and whatnot, uh, people are interacting with glass panels and sort of windows that come to life. Um, it happens in the Avengers, it happens in Mission Impossible that someone in their car will just like tap the window and then all of a sudden they're finding out, you know, the quickest route to get somewhere or they're finding out the vital signs for their body or something. Um, there's this way that I think, again, goes all the way back to all these myths and legends about glass. There's this way that we've come to expect that we can reach out and just touch a glass surface and it's just all of a sudden can give us all kinds of information and give us access to this world we're curious about. Um, and, you know, what started as science fiction and when it goes way back to sort of fantasy stories now happens with the cell phone. With the cell phone, we forget, but we're just tapping on glass all the time now. And it's glass, which is the surface doorway portal window 
that gives us access to the places we want to be, the people we want to see, the things we want to have. Um, all like there's this way in which not only is glass all around us in terms of windows and whatnot, but glass is this sort of thing that we fantasize we can interact with, touch, have it, have it give us what we want in a way that plastic, people just don't have that emotional relationship with plastic. Right. And even if we go back to the graduate, I mean, and there's something implicitly empty about that guy's suggestion to Benjamin. <laughs> we're, oh, yeah, we're, totally. we're, we're meant to laugh at it. We're meant we're not meant to go, oh, yes, yeah, plastic. That would be the best thing for you to do with your life. So um, and, and, you know, there's, I think, also a sense like even watching that Corning video, you know, it it's attractive. Uh, but it's also a little bit unsettling, right? We I, and I think that there's um, a double edge to this whole process. So we, when we get to movies like Minority Report, I mean, there's all this stuff that you know you can, you know, all these images that you can move around on glass and ch- change things, change the size and the perspective, and all this terrific stuff. But I mean, my, Minority Report is not an unsinister movie either. There's a sense in which, surrounded by technology, an awful lot of it flying up there on this miraculous type type of glass, we're both given access to a lot of things and maybe also imprisoned by some of those same things? Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, yeah, so it's in the Corning video, uh, for people who haven't seen it, and everyone should go watch it. It's, yeah. it's absolutely worth it. But um, yeah, I mean, the person's like brushing their teeth, and then they tap the mirror and they see the day's schedule. Um, or they're at the refrigerator and they tap the sort of glass surface and all of a sudden they see what they need to order. Um, or the windows, it's dark when they're sleeping and they can tap the window and all of a sudden um, light pours through. And I think you're exactly right. Like on the one hand, it's like, oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. The world's going to do just what we want it to, any surface we can touch. But we know also, like with cell phones, that we're also trying to get off of screens. We're trying to have these more kind of analog moments where we aren't just sort of tapping, interacting, being stimulated. So I think, yeah, there's the menace that like, oh, glass lenses mean we're being surveilled or watched all the time. I mean, that's not good. Um, but glass also means that like, there's no downtime if a window is just, is never just a window and a glass surface is never just a glass surface. That it's always something that we can go deeper with. We can make it do things we want it to do. It feeds our fantasies of control, but like sometimes I think we need to take a break from being in control. <laughs> I think also our our whole attitude, our whole relationship towards this substance and this surface is changing in that way. I just went through the experience of having my old iPhone 6S die this kind of gasping, sputtering, La Boheme kind of death. Uh, and while that was happening, things started not working as well, and I found myself tapping really hard on the screen like I, I was trying to kill a carpenter ant with my index finger or something because yeah. like the little arrow <laughs> wasn't doing anything and, and I thought I found myself thinking this is a strange thing to be doing because you know 20 years ago I don't think I really thought about glass as anything that was particularly responsive to my touch or my finger now I'm furious because I can't access the universe uh, by just tapping on a little piece of glass so I feel like our you know, you make a good case in the book that we've always had sort of a, as I say, numinous and kind of marveling relationship with glass. But I also feel like it's changing, right? It's what we think we can do with glass. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you describe that <laughs> that image of you just tapping, 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 yeah. wanting the thing to come on. Yeah. Like, I can't help but think of a child that like doesn't understand <laughs> why I can't get like more juice out of the bottle or I can't get the toy to make a sound that it's supposed to make. Um, there's this way in which 
like glass, because it's all the heart of technology is making us feel more evolved, more advanced. But yeah, there's a, I mean, we've all had this. There's a way in which when you look over at people and you see them just constantly tapping on the phone, like in some ways they like, I don't know, they seem kind of devolved in a certain way um, or that they have some expectation of something they're never going to get. So, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, but nonetheless, I mean, it's like what intrigues me is, personally, you said earlier, yeah, it wouldn't have worked in the graduate for the guy to tell Dustin Hoffman, one word for you, the future is Mm -hmm. glass. Right. But at this, but at the same time, when we hear that, we realize that's actually, that's actually what's true, that that we do migrate towards the glass Coke bottle, the milk bottle, the glass services. They're not plastic services. We imagine the future made of glass. So there is a way in which um, kind of the joke of the graduate is that that guy didn't get that actually glass was going to be the future. Right. I mean, for a long time, and we'll get into this probably in the next segment, but for a long time, the fact that glass breaks was like the main reason it wasn't yeah. completely dominating everything. It's also a little bit heavier for the most part uh, than than plastic. But I, I, I think also you make this point very well that so I'm thinking about the fact that I do get my milk delivered in bottles. And I like that for reasons that I would find it difficult to articulate. But I do. I like it. Uh, and, and I think I like it because, yes, it calls me back to a, a past time. I'm old enough to remember milk and glass bottles. But there's also, you know, I mean, the Egyptians didn't have plastic. They had glass, <laughs> you know. Uh, the Ptolemaic uh, society uh, had glass. They, there's a way in which we we kind of get how glass is made out of sand. There's, I don't know, it feels more like a part of an unbroken line of civilization. Plastic feels like this weird thing we figured out how to do. Yeah, there's no, like if I use the phrase, the romance of plastic (laughs) like it doesn't make any sense and if you think about it like when people use that word plastic to describe people um you know it's it's never in a positive way Mm -hmm. and so i think you're right i think it's okay to admit this like there's a romance to using glass like a building made all of out of glass um or having a sort of a i don't know an old-timey telescope or something that's like a lot, in a lot of ways, as much as we're desiring to get into the future and we're fascinated by new technologies and whatnot, we're actually longing to get to the past also, and glass gives us access to that. Um, as we get ready to end this segment, uh, let's end it as we began. So uh, since I said that you have John Don and uh, Blondie yeah. in, the, in the same chapter side by side, a- analyzed in a very sort of coterminous way, um, give, us, give us your take on Blondie because we're going to go out with that song. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Heart, I mean, first of all, Heart of Glass has been one of my favorite songs far before I wrote the book. I don't know. I mean, I think it's fascinating that we talk about our heart breaking and our heart shattering. It's like the perfect image for what happens to us when we fall out of love, even though a heart is not made of glass at all. Um, but what I love about that song is, I don't know, but there's something, even though glass breaks and hearts break, like that's kind of why we like them. Mm-hmm. The experience of being heartbroken or the experience of a glass shattering, it kind of reminds us that we're human and that we live in a world where vulnerability is a good thing. There's also, I think in that song, a, a sense of weariness too, a sense of weariness about that scene that the song so um, exemplifies. Um, you yeah. know, there's there's a sense uh, about the heart of glass maybe being uh, brittle, more transparent and not in a good way. Not in a good way, but 
mean, that's kind of, that's the price we pay, I think is what that song wants (laughs) to say. The price we pay for being able to fall in love or to desire things is that we might end up being disappointed. I think that's, glass. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I have to think, but it's hard to think of a better metaphor for that than glass. And it's absolutely true. It's beautiful, but it breaks. Uh, we have to stop there, uh, at okay. least for this part of the conversation. Uh, the book is fascinating. Uh, the guest is John Garrison, professor at Grinnell College and author of the book, Glass, an easy title for all of you to remember. Uh, all right, we'll uh, move on here, but here's Debbie Harry. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a -a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. So you were just borrowing those cars? Ask him about his bank account. Ask about his bank account. Ask him about his bank account. You should ask him about his bank account. Captain, Santiago broke the glass. All right, that's glass breaking on uh, Brooklyn uh, Nine-Nine. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more about glass. In a way, this whole show began, I think, about 35 years ago, when I happened to be seated next to a guy named Dave Alderson at dinner. Our wives worked together. He was an engineer for 3M, uh, and he started talking to me about glass and about how, in his opinion, glass was a better material for storing stuff, particularly storing stuff like soda. Uh, he said the only problem is that it breaks. And he, at 3M, was part of a whole effort to see if they could figure out how could they make a lighter weight 
uh, kind of glass that had all the really great qualities of glass, but also did not shatter. Uh, and I've been fascinated by glass uh, ever since. Joining us to uh, talk about this and other things is Alex Clara, professor of glass science at Alfred University. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. And second of all, I'm told by our producer, Lily Tyson, that you have kind of a spiel uh, uh, about all the things that glass can be that you give to your students. So I'm just going to step back and, and let you do that. Thank you. Well, the common problem is people think that glass is just the stuff in the windows or the stuff that you drink out of. But actually, glass is a structure of a material, and you can actually make a glass out of metal, out of plastic. All it takes is for you to cool it fast enough. And for a metal, that has to be very fast. But there are all different types of glasses around there, and you can't see through every single one of them. But the ones we most use for just general daily lives, we can see through them. So one of the things that I, I asked our previous guest about, but you can probably talk much more knowledgeably about, is this whole kind of apparently somewhat murky question about what state glass is in. Uh, it's maybe not 100% solid and not 100% liquid. Can you enlighten us about this? Well, if you're talking about the regular glass that we know, the structure is almost exactly the same as a liquid. If we could take a photograph of it where all the atoms are and then took a photograph of a liquid of the same composition, the photographs would look the same. The difference would be if we took the photograph of the liquid a few seconds later and took the photograph of the glass a few seconds later, everything in the glass would be pretty much in the same position. In the liquid, those atoms can move around. So the structure is the same. It's just that the liquid can flow, whereas glass doesn't really flow. There are some people who say it flows a bit. Um, but basically at room temperature, it doesn't necessarily flow and certainly not like a liquid. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you, you talked about the glass that we are the most familiar with. My understanding is yeah. that that's called soda, soda lime glass or soda yeah, lime soda silica. Lime glass. silica. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so explain just really quickly what that is. What is soda lime silica glass? Okay, silica is the main part of the glass, the thing that holds it together. And you're used to silica being sand that you get on the beach, but that's crystalline. And in the glass, it's sort of not as tidily set up as it is in a crystal. The other two things in there are soda and lime. And soda is basically sodium oxide. And lime actually is calcium carbonate. And you start out by putting both the soda and the lime in as calcium carbonate. But basically, they end up just as the oxide. And what that does for you, if you tried 
to take a bucket full of sand off the beach and tried to melt it, you'd have to have an oven in your kitchen that goes to about um, 2,400 Fahrenheit. And, you know, most ovens don't do that. And so consequently, it's nicer to not have to melt it so hot. And so, and silica actually, if it was on its own, you'd have to go quite a bit higher than that. By putting the soda and the lime in, it reduces that temperature a little bit. Mm. So, Alex, Claire, if I were to approach you with a beverage in each of my two hands, and it's your favorite beverage, uh, like some, but something like Coca-Cola or something like that, and I've got it in a plastic bottle in one hand and a glass bottle in the other hand, which bottle are you going to want? And tell me why. I'd probably take the glass bottle, and you've got to remember you're talking to a glass geek. So, you know, naturally I'm going to take the glass bottle. But also... The glass will kind of keep the drink cooler. Mm -hmm. Um, The plastic is pretty thin. And although it's light, plastic, if you've ever had, you know, like those water bottles, you can dent them a bit. And if you've got the lid off, the water will go all over the place. But glass is a very solid material and it doesn't do that. So I would choose a glass because it would keep the drink cool and it would be not squeezable. And also, not only that, but glass is very recyclable. So it's a very green material when your green is inverted uh, or quotes. Um, So it's very green in that you can recycle it ultimately many times. Absolutely. Although there's some debate about this because glass is heavy, often requires, um, therefore, more fossil fuel to move it around, uh, often requires more packaging materials uh, to keep it from breaking. There are some people who say, you know, on the net of carbon emissions, it could be that plastic, uh, you know, has certain advantages that glass doesn't. But but I sort of feel the same way. And I, I said at the beginning of the show, I now have my milk delivered to my house in glass bottles. And when I'm done, I leave the bottle out and the milk person picks it up and takes it away and fills it up with more milk, um, presumably after performing certain operations on it. Uh, And to me, that seems like perfect. I mean, that's real recycling. So so I recently bought a new iPhone, uh, and it has a Mm -hmm. miraculous glass screen on it. We think of glass as being breakable, but oddly enough, when it came time for me to buy a screen protector, for the magical glass of my iPhone, I also wound up buying a piece of glass, uh, you know, a very, very thin, very Mm -hmm. specialized piece of glass. So that's kind of sort of the, it's an odd thing, right? Buying a piece of glass to protect something from shattering. Oh, absolutely. You can make glass very strong and you can do it because the only thing that makes glass weak because you've got pretty strong bonds in the whole of the glass. But what makes it weak is glass is a brittle material. And if you get a little dent or scratch on the surface, that 
crack could go all the way through the glass very quickly. And if you ever unlucky enough to drop your iPhone on its edge, sometimes you can get it to crack. But in order to not have it break, especially when you're sticking your finger into the glass to uh, get it to do things, what they do is basically they iron exchange the glass. And what that means is that in the surface of the glass, they allow molecules or atoms that are much bigger than some of the atoms that are in the glass to exchange with the ones in the glass. And if you think about it, if you stuff the big beach ball in a load of, you know, small rubber balls, and then it'd be harder for those rubber balls to sort of move around and have gaps between them. And that's essentially what those big irons do. They kind of squish the other ones together. Hmm. So if you've got a crack on the surface, it gets squished shut. And then the glass becomes very strong. So there's a way in which we live in in a world powered by invisible forms of glass. I think especially of fiber optic cable, things like that. Um, But we're also moving towards a world where we may become a little bit more glass. Tell us a little bit about bioglass. Oh, bioglass is really cool stuff. And the really kind of neat thing is it's not way different from the stuff you've got in your windows. The only thing that's a bit different is it has less silica in it and it has more of like the soda and lime, especially the soda. And what that means is you wouldn't want to make your cola bottle out of bioglass because it is designed so that when it, meets a fluid and in the case of bioglass it's usually a body fluid that that will kind of corrode the glass but the neat thing is when this particular glass gets corroded it forms a chemical called hydroxyapatite which is the mineral proportion of the bone and so essentially it will change into the mineral part bone so you can use it to pack holes in bones probably even join bones together as well and so it has a lot of uses and pretty much you could use it anywhere like for example if you wanted to load it up with medicine it could be a medicine delivery device for a particular uh, location in the body Right. So uh, it's great stuff. Right. Reading, I've been reading about bioglass, and they talk about repair of yeah. periodontal things, cranial yeah. and maxillofacial repair, wound care, blood loss control, uh, all kinds of stuff. So we're going to have more and more glass in us uh, as we go along here through life. Well, this has been fascinating. The people who take your classes are lucky, Alex Clare. You're so good at explaining stuff. Uh, Alex Clare is a professor of glass science at Alfred University. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. And we will uh, have one more segment here, and that will be about glass as art, specifically blown glass as art. Uh, And we'll be back with that.
All right. We are back. It's time to say some thank yous. Uh, this particular show has, as always, as its technical producer, Kat Pastor. Uh, she's here in the studio with me, making sure everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. Uh, and then producing the actual episode uh, is Lily Tyson, uh, who conceived of the this particular – actually, I was the one who suggested it, I guess, because of my conversation with Dave Alderson 35 years ago. Uh, but she's done an amazing job of putting this show together, as usual, for Lily Tyson. All right. So the last part of our conversation is going to be about glass as art specifically. And, and it's kind of made its way. I would not have guessed that a reality show about glass blowing would be particularly successful. But Blown Away on Netflix is a legitimate phenomenon. Here to talk about all of that is Eric Meek, Senior Manager of Hot Glass Programs at the Corning Museum of Glass. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, I mean, maybe just talk a little bit about the cognitive transition from glass as something that you put pickles in uh, to glass as something that you make art out of. These are, in some ways, two very different approaches to the same material. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I, I think, you know, that transformation happens, though, as soon as you see it in, in a molten state, right? Once you witness glass in 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 this amorphous glowing, molten, gooey state, uh, you can't help but be inspired by the potential of it. Well, I think it takes a certain kind of person, too. I, I might I might mainly be frightened by it. But so and actually, we should say, I think last week was about was like the 30th anniversary of your first kind of plunge, not literally into this medium. Yeah. You know what? That was in the back of my head just when you were saying that, because I remember yeah, 30 years ago, about this time of year, um, when I went to school, taking that first gather. And you're right. Upon my first approach to the furnace, the your whole body is telling you this is a bad idea. Step back. Get away. This is 2000 degrees. Um, but but yeah, it's definitely a, a thrill once you start to work with the material. There's a way in which working with the material for artistic purposes also just connects you to thousands of years of history. Uh, you know, I said before the uh, Egyptians didn't have plastic and neither did the Romans or the Greeks. They had glass. And maybe you could say a little bit about that, too, about, you know, just just the tradition of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the one of the great pleasures of working at the Corning Museum of Glass is that we're around such an amazing collection. And, you know, when I walk in or when I take people through the museum and we look at the Roman glass, really the tools and technologies and the techniques of forming glass have changed very, very little since the Romans first started making glass about 2000 years ago. And, and you're right, it really transformed things at the time because, you know, making a vessel out of glass, especially the simple little cruets and ewers like you see in the Roman Empire, is really a pretty quick process. And if you think about it, it was one of the first materials where you could, you know, transform a raw material into a useful object in just a couple of minutes. And I think I read somewhere that there are pieces from the Roman Empire that people can't figure out how to make today. There are certainly pieces um, that exhibit a level of, you know, I think people could figure them out, but they exhibit a level of refinement and sort of, you know, the, the, the human sweat equity put into an object back then, it's hard to replicate today. So there are certainly objects that would be challenging for even the best glass artists today. I want to talk about glass artists and kind of what's happening there. I mean, it, it occurs to me that there are people like Michelangelo who painted and sculpted but I don't think they said, you know, I think I'll do some glass blowing, too, because that's that's art. I mean, it, this seems 
very, very different and very difficult, and you're working with a material and with a process that you're trying to control, but it, it I don't know, there's sort of a wildness to what's going on, right? It must feel at times like the material you're working with is kind of alive and may have inclinations of its own. Oh, sure, sure, ab- absolutely. Um, but, you know, with, with practice, you, you can manage it. I, and I, I think it's really, I mean, when you look at glass as an artistic material, you know, it was all the way up through World War II, where it was almost strictly utilitarian. Sure, it would have been decorative, but it was made in an industrial way. So it's really sort of, you know, independent artists and thinkers who started using the material and putting sculptural meaning and personality into the work that really didn't happen until the 50s and 60s. Um, You know, and there are lots of factors that led to that, including, you know, having the skills of industry to support, you know, then sort of a broadening perception of the material and its possibilities. But I'd like to know a little bit more about how you're feeling when you're working with this. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got to feel different from being a painter or a sculptor. It's got to feel as though, I mean, things are hot. Things, I don't know, there's there's a certain care you must have to take for your own safety. Uh, there's also the whole problem of the work of art you're working on breaking. Yep. <laughs> so talk a little yeah. bit about just how, it, how, how do you feel while you're doing all that? Give us kind of a sense of what it's like to be you. Sure. So, I, I mean, I'm speaking specifically about using shaping molten glass at the furnace. And there are, of course, lots of lots of ways to to use glass in art. But shaping molten glass, you know, on a pipe by hand, I, I think the thing about it is, is is your perception of creating art isn't just about the end product. For, for me, it's about the process, like the, the glass making process. I mean, at times it's stressful, but most of the time the process itself is just beautiful you know you it's you have to be fluid you have to think about the timing you have to react to the material when you're shaping glass by hand you gather it from the furnace at 2000 degrees you can shape it until it gets around a thousand degrees give or take we'll say and as the glass goes through that temperature range it goes through a a viscosity range a, a different work abilities and it changes and it's never the same material from one moment to the next so really that that process of creating is is one of the most wonderful things to experience and then you know through that process you can express yourself so it's really kind of the whole package you know i i i don't paint but and i'm sure it's enjoyable to paint but you know having having it be a physical action you know something that requires your stamina and strength and and focus um and uh, you know and then wind up with this beautiful object it's just really fulfilling yeah there's sort of a there's definitely a physical quality to all this. In fact, I, I started to watch uh, the the video of you uh, at the Corning Glass Museum, and then I realized it's 90 minutes long, uh, <laughs> which means, yep. which, I mean, you got to get tired. I mean, this is, there's like heavy stuff that has to be, I know you're kind of working with a team in that video, but there's heavy stuff to be lifted and you're in a pretty super hot environment. I mean, there's kind of a triathlon quality to this. Um. Yeah, there is. But, you know, again, you condition yourself to work with, you know, to, 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 to do it. And there are certainly, you know, all sorts of people who make glass. I don't want to give the impression that you have to be, you know, like really super physically mm-hmm. capable to make glass. Um, but but yeah, it's just about working smart. You know, the larger you make something, the more longer you're working, the more people you want to have around you to help out. Um, and and gla- glass, I, I will also say that it's one of 
one of the only artistic medium furnace working glass that relies on a team, right? It's a cooperative effort just by design and it has been ever since the beginning, you know? And so there's just sort of a perception going into the project that um, everyone will help out, that, that you're all pitching in and that really helps, helps it make, you know, it helps share the burden. Do you always know what finished product you're going after or finished, I mean, image that you're going after when you do this? Or does the process and the, the, the medium of glass tell you certain things as you go along? You know, I think um, I think like the first 10 years that you make glass, you have you have that luxury that you sometimes the glass helps decide what it wants to be. And then you get to a point where, you, you know, becoming a good glass maker is all about control. So you get to a point where you where you can't help but but really want a specific outcome. And you actually lose some of the spontaneity of of it because, you know, just in training to become a successful glass maker, you have to be shooting for a goal. Um, and, you know, so now after 30 years, I'm trying to get some of that spirit of the beginning, you know, that more experimental, not being afraid to fail sort of spirit. Give us a sense of what your art is. In other words, what uh, what is the finished product typically for you? Um, you know, the, the work that I like to make is, is really pretty tr- traditional. Again, you know, maybe just in hearing me talk, you know, it's, it's evident that I love the process. Actually, in my role here at the museum as an artist who demonstrates to the guests, you know, in, including participating in something like Blown Away, you know, it's, it's very much about that process and, and how seductive and, and um, transformative that pro- process is. And so, you know, I, I do have a, a style of glass that I love to work in. I love to work in glass in a Venetian style, making things very thin and, and delicate and, and um, and that's something I love to do, but really it's more about the process for me. All right. So um, just very quickly here, we're almost out of time. But one thing that's worth noting is you've kind of already indicated that there's that window, uh, temperature window from 2000 to 1000. So, I mean, you know, painters can go back and repaint parts of their canvas. Uh, sculptors yep. can maybe uh, polish up a little something or chip away at a little something. When you're done, you're done here, right? More, more or less. And I, I would say, you know, because glass making has a tempo, you know, you work on something, maybe you work on it for 90 minutes. If you're not successful, you usually just start over. Glass isn't something that you can set down and come back to. So, you know, typically if a glass maker isn't happy with the product, they'll just start again and, and do another iteration of, of that piece. All right. Eric Meek is the senior manager of uh, Hot Glass Programs at the Corning Museum of Glass. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. And thank you, Lily Tyson, for a really fun show. Thanks to Cat Pastor for making it happen. And Annie Lennox is going to take us out.